Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Bennett. Excited to have you on the show. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. What's interesting is that you're a Malaysian founder, true man of the soil, Malaysian, and you're a founder in the supply chain space. You also have a link with South Korea. So there's some interesting stories we're going to dig into, and I'm excited to have you on the show. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks. It was good to see you as well. How's things over there in Singapore? Singapore is nice and gravy. It's a nice bubble uh, in the world, you know, very safe and sound in here. Lucky and privileged to be here. So, Bernard, I think this is really about you, right? So, for those who don't know you yet, who are you? My name is Bernard. I'm a father of two. I come from this little island called Penang, Penang Island, up north. Right now, I'm a father of two boys. I like to swim, bike, and run all together. So, that makes me a triathlete. And I love Korean dramas. Especially the doctor dramas. I'm a hospital playlist right now. So, <laughs> so I'm also the co-founder. On a more serious note, I'm a, I'm a co-founder of Hatio. Hatio is a basically a South Korean-based company. We're a technology company in the supply chain and logistics space. And uh, currently, we run a cloud supply chain platform called Operato. What it basically does is that helps local SMEs in Southeast Asia, basically, manage their inventory, optimizes their warehouse operations, manage orders from B2B and B2C, and also the marketplaces as well. So yeah, our mandate in um, Southeast Asia is very, very simple. Our mandate is basically to help local SMEs in Southeast Asia digitize. So yeah, that's a little bit about me on both sides. How did you first become entrepreneurial? Was it something you started as a kid or how did it happen? Ah, Interesting. I would say that my entrepreneurial story begins when I was in the university. So my university story is a life experience for me. I did very well in university in the first year. One of the bright students, academically. The turning point really was when I got my results. And then on the second year, I got active in the university. I was in a very new university. I was like the second batch of students. As a second batch of students in this new university, there's nothing, right? Like, like, like there's no clubs, not, not many societies. So we were like creating every single thing that was there, right? Music, club, sports, club, orchestra, the student newspaper and everything else. That is basically the start of where I was founding a lot of things. So I was founder of all these things. And then it was in a second year university as well. They say it's, it's the people that you mix with. So I've got these two very good friends. We came together and we went from rich families. So, of course, we were always looking for that extra buck, that extra buck and extra excitement. And that's where we first started our business. I remember we went to the company registrar without much money. We registered our first sole proprietorship. We printed the name cards the same day in the same building because they have their whole service, whole suite of service there. So, we, we printed the same day, same business cards. And our business cards read, I remember this very silly thing. Our business card read, Managing Director of a sole proprietorship company. It was the Silliest thing ever when I look back right now. Yeah, so so we got ourselves busy in doing all kinds of things. We were even teaching swimming. 
Yeah, we were giving swimming lessons as part of business, uh, but then we got really serious in events management, and that was the start of it. So it all started then, and uh, of course, academically it was affected. I was supposed to graduate in year three, I only did so in year four, <laughs> uh, not because I failed, but because when you don't attend enough classes, you don't have enough credits to sit for the exam, and then they ask you to like. Do it again. So yeah, it started all then. And uh, eventually from one business, we learned from all the events management and then we moved on to youth marketing. Oh yeah, that's where I met Graham Brown. We started Youth Folks Asia. And until today, until today, yeah. It, it never stops, it never stops. It was uncertain all the way, but I, it kinda, it's kind of cool to be in an uncertain mood all the time. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And so how did you end up getting linked to South Korea? It was really a pivotal moment in life. Like I said, I'm, I'm a father of two boys. So, so it was that one fine morning I was having breakfast with my wife. I think this was about five years back. It was really the lowest, I would say, okay, maybe not the lowest point in life, but it was a low point in life. We were running our business. We were into uh, digital innovation programs. We were managing corporate communications projects for public listed companies. And it came to a point, you know, it's like one more one morning you wake up and then you kind of ask each other like, do you foresee yourself doing this the next seven years? And, and you go like, mm, perhaps. But of course, the market was changing. Market was changing. I think the economy starts to take a hit and then budgets were really reducing. So we say, you know what, uh, you know, we, we, don't, we don't have a visibility. So at that point, at that low point, we didn't have visibility of what's going to be revenue, what's going to be income in the next six months or nine months. And it was that point in time we say, you know what? We were having breakfast and we were just scrolling through our Facebook and then we saw that Malaysia Airlines had like a, a sale, right? A crazy sale. So we just say, hey, look, there was a dream that we had. We say, you know, we wanted to, the dream was always to bring the family out for a month holiday. Just leave everything aside. Let's just go. Over that breakfast, over that one Facebook post that we saw with Malaysia Airlines, we click into that and then we check, okay, ticket for four to South Korea. It was Finland. We wanted to go to Finland. The dream was Finland. We kind of figured that if you go to Finland, we'll come back really broke. So what was the next country? And we're like, you know, this whole Korean craze. So we're like, okay, let's try South Korea. And then it turns out there's only like 2,600 ringgit for four to and fro. So we, we, we didn't really, it, was a, it wasn't a planned trip. And one month. So we're like, okay, let's book. And before we know it, the ticket was booked. We went to Korea. We went without expectation. Like I said, it was low point. And it was then, so what do you do one month in Korea? <laughs> it's too long of a holiday. And in the second week, I just started, I just like, hey, you know what? I think it's just time to just go and see what's, what's out there. Long story short, that's where I met my co-founders. I went gate crash into a startup event. I was hoping that they would speak English and not South Korean because I'm going to be dead if they speak Korean. So, so the whole event was in English. I was glad. And really, that was where I met my co-founders currently. And uh, they were looking at, uh, because at that time, they were really looking at the, the South Korean government was really big in helping, in really encouraging and pushing and driving and helping their South Korean businesses, startups out of that market and expand to other regions. So yeah, Hatio was looking at the, the Southeast Asian region and I was a Southeast Asian guy there. That's how it is. The soul love story. Yeah. <laughs> wow, really a serendipity there for your paths to cross like that. What is so interesting about this space? I mean, you know, you decided to really tackle logistics and supply chain and SMEs. What about it is interesting to you? 
Truth be told is that I, I mean, when, when we got into when we got into this space, the backstory is that we, we never came from the logistics space. We don't even know how a warehouse is run and what really supply chain looks like. And then when we got into it, and we slowly learned from the South Asian perspective and the market. And one thing that really caught my attention was that we took about four months. Four months, my co-founder and I, we, of course, we traveled Malaysia, we were in Singapore, we, we, we traveled Vietnam, Bangkok. I remember we spent a lot of time in Bangkok, a lot of fun as well. We were even in Manila. When we go to all these spaces, all these countries, all these markets, we realized, and one thing that, one thing that I learned was really logistics and supply chain are really the backbone of the economy. So that's that's like the number one thing that I've learned. Logistics and supply chain is the backbone of the economy because, and then of course, you, you see the whole behavior change of how people were buying online, the, the increasing consumer demands. So when we look at it, the more we understand the market, we actually saw a opportunity there. So what we do in Korea was, the business in Korea was a lot of warehouse controls and warehouse execution, the robotics, internet of things, automation of warehouses. So we were doing a lot of that. We didn't even have a proper product in a sense. And when we came here, we thought that, Jeremy, the whole idea really was to bring all this super cool, sexy robotic stuff that we have into this region, into this regional market. But after that four months of intense traveling and talking to a lot of locals, so we were very, very focused with the local SMEs guys. We didn't focus on the multinets and the big boys. And we realized that the market wasn't ready for it. It's not about affordability. I remember when, when four years ago when we first came in here and a lot of my friends, a lot of my contacts were telling me, Bernard, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time trying to sell this robotic stuff to all the Chinamen. I was like, okay, you're wasting your time trying to sell technology to all this 30, 40 years business in the market, in Southeast Asian market. So I think that was the challenge to prove a hypothesis. And we went out there. It wasn't because they couldn't afford. It was because the market wasn't ready for it. And why it wasn't ready? Because there was, a, there was still a lot of manual, very legacy operations across. I remember my co-founder and I sat down on the table and said, look, this whole robotic thing, IoT that we're doing in South Korea with CJ and iHeart.com, it's not going to work. We, we can't just bring this stuff in and say we can automate your warehouse. No local SMEs is ready for their warehouse to be automated right now. So what do we do? At the same time, that's where we saw the big opportunity of this huge addressable market in the local SMEs, which is to say, hey, let's help these guys digitize, right? That means, you see, all these guys, you know, if, you, if you imagine a racing track, all these local SMEs are just sitting on the side like, okay, look at the digitalization or digitization, whatever buzzword you like to use, of all these big companies. And maybe you go first. You go and spend first and let's see what happens. So our motivation was saying, hey, you know what? Let's bring all these guys to the starting block. Whether they run or not, that's another story. They run, win or not, finish or not, also another story. But let's just bring all these guys to the, you know. And that's where we started. And hence the, 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 the mandate. You know, the mandate was very strong. Very strong, very simple. Helping local SMEs digitize this. That's how the whole thing happened. And, and we saw because of the whole uh, rising consumer demands, because of the whole e-commerce trend, especially over the last two years, which may, maybe we can talk about that sometime later. That's where we saw that there's a mismatch because there's a lot of these local SMEs, which is on the legacy, whether they are legacy systems or still on the manual basis. Right now, a lot of these local SMEs couldn't scale their business into the following the trend of e-commerce and all that. To put it very simply is that more and more people over the last two years, 40 million people in Southeast Asia went digital and were buying online. So that, that, that is a huge demand. But in the logistics space, for example, a lot of these logistic players are not ready to do e-commerce fulfillment. 
<laughs> so so they're basically losing out. If you look at markets like Malaysia, uh, Singapore, Indonesia, you can see that there's a lot of small little fulfillment centers set up by young people. There's, hey, let's take over this shop lot that just closed now because of COVID, $3 square feet. Let's just put some racks in there, put a system in there and connect the marketplace and let's fulfill for the shippers. We've seen, seen so many of that. So basically, that's where the older local SMEs are basically losing out in that, in that sense. Yeah. So I think that's where we saw the opportunity. Yeah. And what are some myths or misconceptions about this space, SME digitization, especially in Southeast Asia? A couple of things that I've learned, I think I'd like to touch on two or three of this, is that through my experience of, put it simply, selling a software to a, the, the local SME market, is basically what I've learned over the last two, three years in this market is that a lot of these local SMEs are not well informed. It starts from there. So, so very little opportunity for them to make informed decisions. That, that's one. Hence, they were always driven by the fear of technology. Instead of going towards how technology could empower and scale my business, their thinking was always, if I buy this system today, all the limiting factors come. So, so they're thinking the other side. So which is why what I learned is that every time I walk into my first sales pitch or to share about Hatio, I will never bring out my laptop. These guys are ready to see a demo. I'll never bring up my laptop. I'll just look for a whiteboard and I say, hey, look, show me your flow. Okay, this is your flow as is, right? Okay, cool. Where's your problem? And I chart all the problem. So we spend one whole hour in the meeting talking about their flow and their problem. You can see it most of the time. In fact, all the time, in their eyes, you'll be like, whoa, this is the first time somebody plot out the whole flow on the board and plotting out everything, where the problems, where the bottlenecks are and where the problems are. Then you have to basically educate them and say, hey, look, there's nothing to fear about technology. And because now you're informed of your SE situation, let me slowly bring you to B situation. What's future? The myth of this space, of this local logistics and supply chain space is people think that technology is expensive. I couldn't blame them because it has been that way. And that's where we learned about this. For example, a warehouse management software, warehouse management system is half a million dollars. So how could a local SME, they need to make that kind of volume before they can actually invest because it's all about ROIs. So what we did was we said, okay, look, one of our key formulas in Hatio for the Southeast Asian region is to make it really, really, really affordable. To make warehouse logistics solutions affordable and bring it to the cloud. So, of course, the way we architect it, the way we've positioned it. And then we, when we go to the, to the market, that the, one of the key things that we will always try to help them understand is technology doesn't have to be expensive. Technology can be affordable and it, can, it has to be scalable for you and you don't have to fear making this decision. Because it's all about change. We've always got questions like, I like what you're doing. I can see the potential of this software, this system, or this cloud platform that you guys have. But one question, will my guys understand it? Because the, the guys behind the, the, on the background that's working on, on, on the warehouses, they're worried that because they're not highly educated. I mean, in the Southeast Asian market, they're not highly educated. Will they understand the mobile, what they see on the screen? What if they do wrong? <laughs> all those stuff. Yeah, so, but I guess we've managed to help a lot of these guys cross over that, that point and now they're basically looking at it. And in fact, I've always been told not label them as a Chinaman, but really, a lot of these Chinamen are really now our biggest fans. They are telling their other counterparts, don't worry, Bernard and Tim will get you sorted out. And don't worry about whether this whole software thing. Yeah. So I think it's, it's been a fun journey in that sense. Yeah. One of the toughest parts for SME digitization is what you just described, which is about getting the trust, but also getting it implemented, which is you know, a function of that trust. 
how do you make sure that it's implemented and actually integrated into the actual workflow of the SME versus something they buy and try and then throw out away? Yeah, absolutely. You've got the keyword right. It's, it's trust. And it's the ability to develop and build that level of trust with these guys. One key thing I learned is really that you can't walk into that meeting room with these guys and talk all 90% all about your software. What is the benefit of software? This line of thoughts is not going to build trust. You've got to go in there. You've got to really understand their operations. To a many extent, you've got to understand their history. You've got to understand like, hey, you know, you've been in this business for the last 40 years as a third-party logistics. You've been doing this. How have you changed? You've got to understand their story. You've got to understand like, how have they changed? Let me give you an example. My first client, aha, client 001, happens to be a neighbor of mine. So I stay in one corner, he stays in the other. So, so they say, right, you have to find the closest person to you to sell to, right? So I really walk down the street and I say, hey, look, you know, I, I know you run a 3PL. Can you give me a chance? I just want to learn about your, your operations and all that. One of the, I, I, I've always loved this story. He's always telling us, you know, Bernard, I've been using an accounting system to run my inventory. I said, okay, cool. The accounting system that I have was 22 years ago. Okay. It's called QuickBooks. Ah, at that time when I said QuickBooks, I, to be honest, la, I, I needed to sound smart, but I don't even know what QuickBooks was, right? I don't know the brand name. But I said 22 years ago, I said, okay, you mean you run it? Yeah. So uh, 10 years later, after that, you know, when he first bought the 22 years, 10 years ago, he actually upgraded a newer version of QuickBooks. This is the generation that when they buy software, it comes in a box, a CD and a key code inside, right? You tear over the box, there's some key code somewhere that you need to scratch it up. I remember in, a, in that office, he took out that box and he showed me, but this is the box. I said, oh, wow. We well, you know what's the most interesting story about this? This interesting part is, he says, I've, I've never used this version. I said, why? Because when I tried to install it, it never worked. So I quickly uninstall it, keep the box away. And so today, I'm still using 22 years ago version. I'm like, okay. But you see, this, this is the part, this is the part where because I don't position myself as a software seller to this guy, I position myself as Hey, I'm here listening to your story here. This is a shoulder. Come, let's talk. Here's a glass of whiskey or here's a bowl of bakute. Okay, let's talk. Tell me. Tell me your history. And to be honest, when you're sincere and genuine about it, there's so much you can learn from all these stories. There's so much you can learn from all these histories and the way they have basically, like I said, QuickBooks 22 years, QuickBooks 10 years later. And today, there's so much things you can learn. And eventually, just by lending that ear, just by having that conversation and not pitch. So go in with a conversation instead of pitch. So just by doing that, the trust naturally builds in. And this first client, and of course the second client as well, we did the same thing. Our track record, so-called track record is... We had our first two clients signing a contract with us. So two clients, about half a million dollars without us having a product. <laughs> so we like basically saying, yeah, we have this whole WMS thing. So we show them some mock-ups and blah, blah, blah. And they say, okay, but do it. How fast can you deploy? We're like, okay, now we don't have a product. How fast can we deploy, right? So we put together the, we went back to the engineering team and say, okay, how fast? Because you must remember how we never had a WMS. We were doing all these warehouse controls and execution. So we took all the capabilities that we're doing with the robots and all this stuff, all this automation stuff, and we put together all the module and say, hey, this is your WMS. So we delivered in four months. We didn't know whether that was fast or slow anyway, but yeah, because the trust was there. So we delivered in four months, we went live, and this boom, you know, overnight, this guy who has been 22 years on QuickBooks running his warehouse, huh, by the way, the old version, and today... I remember what Uncle Tan, right? So this, this neighbor of mine, my client's usual one, his name is Uncle Tan. I call him by the name of Uncle Tan. I remember what Uncle Tan said, you know, when the week after we went live, he said, Bernard, this is my dream come true. 
I've been dreaming about this software. In fact, I, I've been writing the whole system in my mind. You know, oh, I like, okay. <laughs> I've been writing, I mean, you know, it's like doing that coding in my mind about how a warehouse management system should work like for the last 20 years. You made my dream come true. You see, and I think that that is the very essence of engaging with the local SME in Southeast Asia. And I like to say that Hatio as a team, that's really... I shared with you earlier, you know, since day one, we're in Southeast Asia. We have this tagline hashtag or mantra in our, our office in the team and says, hashtag relationship matters. And then we say, you know what, just keep focusing on that. Just keep going there. And I tell you this, Jeremy, every Monday morning, I walk into the office. We have our senior leadership team meet and we have a small mini town hall, whoever that's in office. And I will never fail. I will never fail to stress it to the team every Monday morning since first the first time we started in Southeast Asia until today, I say, hey, look, I might not know what I want for Hatio or I might not know what Hatio is going to turn out to be, but there's one thing I damn sure what I don't want Hatio to be. I don't want us to end up being a software seller. That's the last. <laughs> Let's not go out there and be a software seller. Here, here's a box, here's a CD. No, no, no. That's been our guiding light all, all this while. Yeah. Amazing. But... Uh, when you think about that guiding light, I'm sure there must have been some tough times along the way. Could you tell us about a time that you have been brave? Tough times, yep. A lot of it. But I think a time that I was that we've been brave really is I go back to the first starting story, which is I was just having lunch with my brother-in-law two days ago and we were just talking about life. It was really somehow or rather, it went back to the Korean trip, the Korean holiday that we had. I was telling him, I was sharing with him, I said, you know what? When we went for the one-month holiday, of course, we call it a holiday. You know, we were posting it over Facebook. You know, it's like day one, day two, day 30. You know, I remember I remember day 31 in Incheon Airport and we were posting it. When I came back, a lot of people thought that, whoa, Bernard, oh, you must be doing damn well, right? You guys must be doing, be doing so well that you can just leave everything and go holiday for one month. Who can afford holiday one month, especially in these times, blah, 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 you know? That one-month holiday that we took, then... It was not because we were doing so well, but it was because we were at the lowest point in our life. <laughs> I mean, okay, maybe not lowest, but it was really in one of the low points. One of the low points. Low points of waking up and saying and asking each other, do you foresee doing this the next seven years? Or where is our next income, right? Where is, where is our next contract going to be? How are we going to hit our next breakthrough? When financially you are not that strong or rather, you know, when, when, when there's a little bit of loss of, loss of direction in, in life. And, and because my wife and I were in the same business, she's like my best partner in crime. And it was literally then the both of us had to make that decision and say, okay, you know what? Let's go somewhere. Let's have a change of environment, a change of scenario. Let's go without expectations. We didn't plan anything. The only thing that we planned was the place we stayed. And that also because we, we, we know of a friend, right? So the, that was the only thing we planned for the trip. Nothing else was planned. And it was good. And I remember in the airport, you know, my wife and I was telling myself, let's go with an open heart, with an open mind. Expect the unexpected. So, we, <laughs> and clicking that, of course, okay, maybe Malaysia Airlines came in at the right time. 2006 for tickets for 4% to and fro. So the cost was quite bearable. But really, to just take off, I won't put it as it was solely my decision. I, I think it was really because I, I'm so blessed and lucky to have a partner in crime who also shares the same mission and shares the same thinking process and say, okay, maybe we can take this risk for once and do something crazy instead of trying to figure out what's the next business model, where who's our next client, who should we pitch to, what should we sell? Let's just go. Let's just leave and take off. 
So yeah, we came back with Hatio. <laughs> so really expect the unexpected. Yeah. So I, I guess there was there was something really brave that, that that we did. I mean, looking back four or five years ago, it's like lowest point in life. You're supposed to be figuring out where's your next income gonna be, and there you go holiday for a month. Yeah. Awesome. What a story. Thank you so much for sharing. I love to wrap things up by sharing the three big themes I heard. The first, of course, thank you for sharing your perspective as an expert in SME digitization. So I love, I think, the thought that you have around your background, why you care about it and the different ways to approach it. I also really like the second thing is that your approach to selling before building. What a great story about building trust and selling to the person who's closest to you. The fact that you're able to build the warehouse management software of his dreams is a nice way to make someone's dreams come true. And lastly, of course, thank you so much for sharing a lot about the serendipity of your holiday, about how it was at your low point, and yet it somehow helped birth the startup that you are now a co-founder of. And it's just amazing to hear how luck or blessing or whatever you want to call it really play a part in making all of it happen. Thanks for allowing me to share this. We closed our round in March this year. We closed a small little round, just enough. So I was taught, because see, my co-founder is not a, it's not the same age as me, right? It's not the you know, late 30s, mid 30s, or gung-ho. He's 56. Mr. Nam is 56 in Korea. So we're very grounded. You know how a father would ground you? Like? And so, so we've been always taught, we have this mindset, raise enough money, right? You raise just enough. Don't, don't raise money that you don't need. And we just closed a round in March this year. A small little round. It was really these stories. I remember I, I, I was like, we prepared the whole pitch deck. Okay, yeah, we run through the important points. But it was really these stories that it really affirms the conviction of really going out there and build the real trust. Don't just go out there and sell. Go out there and build a real trust. Have real conversations with people. Be human. There's a lot of things, about buzzword of humanizing technology, you know, kind of thing. But really, it's all about really being human. Have good conversations out there. Be real build those trust, build those relationships. And yeah, and that's, that's how actually we landed our close our first round as well. <laughs> so we're lucky again. Thanks for having me on the show, Jeremy. It was nice talking to you. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.